because you're jumping back into the gut. Hey coach, welcome to the basketball podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Awesome to welcome sports psychologist, author, and podcaster Dan Abrahams to the Basketball Podcast. Dan works alongside individuals, teams, coaches, and organizations globally. He is known for his passion to demystify sports psychology and for creating simple-to-use performance techniques. He is the author of four best-selling sports psychology books, including Soccer Tough and Golf Tough, and is the founder of both the Dan Abrahams Soccer Academy and the Sports Psych Show podcast. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, I am so super psyched to be here, Chris. Thank you so much for the invite. Well, I followed you long enough on Twitter uh, and definitely listened to your podcast and just tons of great information. So can't wait to talk a little bit more specifically about relating some of those concepts to basketball. Uh, and I want to start with this because I think this is where it all starts. And you've said this. It all starts with engagement. It does. It does. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's... Um... I mean, it's a, it's a good opening, open-ended question to dive in there. I mean, I, I, I always say coaching is about, it works in servitude to three Ps, uh, participation, progression, and performance. The three Ps. I, I, I think every coach on this planet is kind of invested in those three Ps. The participation piece is the engagement piece, as you've mentioned there. You know, can you engage your players today in this activity, in this session, this week, this month, this season? And engaging them requires capturing their uh, attention, motivating them, capturing their interest, helping them experience, uh, I suppose, a range of emotions, joy, fun, challenge, et cetera, et cetera. And then just briefly moving on, from there, um, the progression piece is the learning piece. Can we help players to learn? And then can we help them to perform? As in, hand, can we help them to compete? But it does. For me, learning and performance starts with engagement. And this is true. I, I think the one P that is true for every single coach on the planet is the participation piece, is that engagement. Because you can be... Um, you can be a, a, a college basketball coach. You can be an NBA uh, coach, but participation is possibly the most important. Engagement is absolutely vital. You can't afford to lose that locker room. You have to get them to pay attention uh, in the classroom, on the court. Um, you have to capture their imagination, their interest. But if you're a basketball coach of six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, it's the same thing. Now, if you're a coach of six, seven, eight-year-olds, maybe performance isn't quite where it's at, right? That's not really what you're trying. It's not your main focus. At least I probably hope it's not, right? But whether you're a coach of the best basketball players in the world, whether you're a coach of six, seven, eight-year-olds, engagement is absolutely crucial. So that's where it's at. Well, I love it. And uh, I had a great uh, teacher once tell me that the number one thing I had to do was to entertain. And it totally makes sense that to engage them, to get them to, as you say, to be able to teach them, stretch them and test them. First, I need to engage them. And I love how that that connects so easily in coaching. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love that idea of, of entertaining them. And, and, and I think there's various ways to entertain them, uh, to entertain players. It doesn't just have to be about... Oh, it doesn't mean have... frivolous fun, does it? No, no, no. no. It, it could absolutely. That could be a great uh, mental warm-up, uh, sweat and smiles or smiles leading to sweat. Um, absolutely, it could be. It could be engaging players from a team perspective you know entertainment can come in the form of collaboration and communication and connection that can be a big part of your of your coaching practice and and the drivers with your engagement equally it could be a case of you know we're going to do some pretty serious stuff here i want to learn and i want you to learn a new play a new move a new technique or series of techniques and so subsequently i've got to i've got to give you a bit of a bit of a learning warm-up here now what that can look like might be a, a range of things but again we've got to engage attention prior to learning probably probably and then equally we want might want to engage before a game uh before a competitive game a competitive meet i love that idea of of entertainment i'm there i'm the it makes me think think chris of of coaches facilitator as well you know, being in the middle of the, the court there. And it might be that uh, as a coach, you are an expert of certain things, but it also might be that you're a facilitator of certain things and you're helping players collaborate and you're giving players autonomy to work on certain things and, and work certain things out. So it's coaches facilitator, coaches entertainer, coach, coach as the warmer upper of attention and interest. I think that's absolutely crucial. The reason I start there is because I want to go to some place where I think basketball coaches in particular need to hear some of your expertise. And that's around this concept of performance is not learning and the challenge point framework and this concept, because we seem to be somewhat obsessed with clean perfection drills. And again, not saying something's wrong with them, but just understand that that's not about stretching them. That's not about learning. That's about, again, perfection. Well, being a sports psychologist, I, I, I'm a sports psychologist who takes a broad definition of psychology. I mean, psychology, sports psychology is a very interesting one. And I'm going to get around to answering your question, but I, I, I want to put in a mini introduction here first, because I think one of the main texts in sports psychology, you know, when you go and do a master's degree or something like that in sports psychology, one of the first books you'll open has 64, 64 chapters. Um, <laughs> and, and, and yeah, exactly. It's extraordinarily broad. And what people don't necessarily realize is the crossovers uh, with coaching science, but also actually skill acquisition. I believe around in the 60s and 70s, and I don't want to talk over my head here, but you know, around the 60s and separa uh, 70s, separated off from sports psychology. So skill acquisition has its, has its genesis from the discipline discipline of sports psychology. And so as a sports psychologist, you know, because skill acquisition is I mean, there's, there's a lot of theories and there's a lot of controversy out there as to how, how people learn, especially in sport. Uh, and we're try, trying to not get too mired in the controversies of different uh, skill acquisition theoretical standpoints. But, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, as a sports psychologist, I'm fascinated in cognition. I'm fascinated with memory, um, what people can hold any given time. You know, how does the brain and the nervous system involve themselves when a player is learning? And there's some great experts uh, 
um, on this. And, you know, my understanding is learning is performance because when we throw new information uh, into the mix, when we introduce people to new information, then it becomes challenging for them. They have to slow down. They have to think about what they're doing. And so subsequently, in that situation, we don't necessarily, because we've thrown in this information, new information, because they're slowing down, they're having to think about this a little bit, they're having to embody what we're talking about, what we're introducing to them or what they're, they're working on themselves. We don't necessarily want to see every activity executed perfectly. Uh, I think we need to shift the dial of what excellence is in that situation. And excellence in that situation might be spilled balls. It might be being out of position. It might be losing a challenge. Why? Because there's new information and our brain has to take on board that information. Our bodies have to get used to that new information. So we don't perform as well as effectively. So if you're by the side of the court, you're a coach by the side of the court and you're observing and your players are doing everything great, everything great. That's fine if you set things up for maintenance of skill. If you're seeing your players do everything okay, just like they're doing a game and you've set up a game similar to the game, that's great. That means a lot of things will transfer to the game. That's performance. But when you've thrown in new information, then you need to be standing by the side of the court. And if you're witnessing, oh, people are struggling here. Players are struggling a little bit. They've slowed down. They're really thinking. They're, they're two steps behind. That player's just dropped the ball where ordinarily he or she might not have done. You're just seeing learning in that instance. That's not a bad thing. So let's be careful as coaches what we demand from players, what we want from players. Ultimately, it comes down to what are, we, what are your activities for? What are you trying to do in your activity here? Are you trying to help players engage in maintenance or confidence in that way? We might create slightly easier tasks. Are we trying to engage players in a game that we want to transfer onto the court? Um, in that way, we might make the game really specific to what everybody does on the basketball court and make it quite tough. If we want players to learn, then we might strip back quite a bit of information. But the new information that we're presenting to players, that's the thing that makes it tough for them. So be aware they are going to struggle a little, little bit, and that's okay. That comes under the rubric, really, of deliberate practice. It's tough for them. They require feedback, whether it's from yourself as a coach, whether it's amongst their peers. They require feedback. They need um, some information for you as to how, they, how they're doing. But it's just don't insist on perfection there. Give them that space to make mistakes. Uh, great stuff. And uh, you talked about controversy uh, a little bit there, but you also, and by the way, coaches, follow Dan on Twitter. Uh, just an incredible resource at Dan Abraham 77. Incredible resource and all of your tweets informational. And uh, one thing you said is for coaching practices, we can probably all agree on as important. If you don't mind, let's go through those. Uh, number one, I think you listed was scaffolding. Yeah. Think of scaffolding. Think of scaffolding uh, like builders would put up scaffolding. Why do they do that? To support themselves. 
be able to get up to the top of the building. Sometimes players need support. Okay, sometimes net players need support to be able to learn uh, a skill or maintain a skill or build confidence or whatever it is you're trying to achieve. And I, I think this is where, you know, before before we went on air, you mentioned to me, hey, Dan, you're heavily involved in soccer, football, yeah. um, not so much basketball. So I'll probably have to use some soccer adva- uh, examples here, but perhaps you can you could uh, come back at me with some basketball uh, ones. But I was actually at a, a soccer club recently, and there was a player that the coaches wanted me to work with um, who was lacking a little bit of confidence. It was a striker. Soccer, a striker, hadn't scored for a long time. And so I wanted to scaffold things for, for, for that striker. So we started a really strict things back because this striker had really lost all confidence. Okay, so rather than going out and say, let's say a small-sided game with um, players around him, what we did was we stripped things back, we scaffolded things by saying, right, it's just going to be a keeper and I'm just going to feed the ball. In fact, I've got one of the coaches to feed the ball to the player. Um, there was still a goalkeeper, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an empty net. So it wasn't challenge less, but the, the scaffold was that there was no defenders around. It was, here's the ball. It went to the same spot every time. There's a scaffold as well. So it, there was not a lot of variability. He could take any um, as many touches as he wanted, scaffold. There wasn't a limitation on the amount of t- touches. It wasn't a, a conditional or constraint. And it was just far away, and we did 10 of those. And I think he scored something like seven or eight um, because it was fairly easy for him. So that's an example of a scaffold. We're just supporting that player's confidence in that moment. You can support a player's learning uh, as well. You can support a player's performance. So scaffolding is just supporting. Uh, You can, another example of scaffolding is the amount of feedback you give somebody. So again, when you've taught somebody something new, if you're giving them a lot of feedback, okay, so as a as a former professional golfer, which I am, and when I used to teach people how to play golf at the beginning, I might give quite a lot of feedback. Okay, I'm not saying I did that all the time, but I might do. That's a form of scaffolding. My voice is accompanying their actions. As the lesson wore on, I would turn down the volume of my feedback. So I would lessen my scaffolding. I would remove my scaffolding because I wanted the player to engage in the action themselves that I was teaching them. So that is an example, a couple of examples of scaffolding. I love this. And this is important for coaches to understand because one of your other things that is agree upon in terms of common coaching practice is variability. So this makes it okay to reduce variability to be able to increase comfort and confidence. And I'll give you a basketball example. A simple basketball example, going to both of your examples, is shooting. So instead of doing, say, a two-on-one shooting drill where a decision precedes the shot or the pass, so there's some type of extra variable with the perception-action coupling, we remove that and we just have the player shoot by themselves Why would we do that? Those blocked reps over and over? Because again, it builds their comfort and confidence. Hey, listen, you can shoot. I don't know what what you're thinking. I mean, you're obviously your percentages are going to get reduced 
in a game-like shooting drill versus a on-air block shooting drill. The other concept that you shared, just to go quickly then, is when we start with shooting teaching, we say maybe we give feedback on 8 of 10 reps, and then gradually we reduce it ideally to say 1 of 10 reps, only an outlier gets feedback, because ultimately the player needs to feel the shot more than we need to tell them. I love that. And it, it, as you were speaking there, it made me think of two words, specificity and representation mm. uh, to accompany this idea of variability. And and maybe, I'm, I, you know, I, I don't want to get mired into the controversy of the different viewpoints that the perhaps the cognitive viewpoint and the ecological viewpoint, because I don't think your listeners would really want to get mired there. But I, I, I would say that, again, what we can all agree on is whether it's basketball, soccer, any kind of team invasion sport, there is a great deal of variability when you go and play. So if we think the game itself is, let's call that 10 out of 10 variability, okay? And we might call that 10 out of 10 variability completely representational, so representational of the game, or high specificity, 10 out of 10 specificity, okay? representational or specificity. And this is different groups of academics and, and different groups of coaches coming from different positions might use the term representation or might use the term specificity. Okay. Now, what we might do is we might think about lessening the representation or lessening the specificity. For instance, stripping away the information around the player. So we're going to remove, we're going to remove players. Or if we're going to keep players, we're going to make sure those players aren't necessarily impinging on the player that we're working with. So if we go back to my soccer example, okay, so I'm working with this striker. This striker has scored eight out of 10 goals so far with just a goalkeeper there. Now, I'm going to add in some more variability. So I'm going to take a scaffold away, add in more variability by adding in a couple of defenders. But I'm going to make sure those defenders are quite passive. So I'm going to say to those defenders, no, 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 no. I don't want you to challenge this striker. I want you to be there and I want you to kind of semi-challenge, kind of five out of 10. You're going to close this striker down when he receives the ball, but let him give him a chance to shoot. But I want him to get the feeling of that representation or specific. I want the specificity that he is experiencing during the game. The specificity of having defenders there, right? So that makes that addition of variability starts to make my activity, or dare I use this term drill, start to look like the game. So we're making it slightly tougher, reducing scaffolding, adding in variability. And then we can add in full contact with the defender. So there's more variability there. Then we can add in perhaps different angles from where the ball might come from for that striker. So he's got to start thinking about, you know, you might have a feeder from the right, a feeder from the left, and you might alternate or do it randomly. Okay. So there's a randomization, you know, to go with the variability as well, which tend to be used hand in hand. So again, We're making it more representational or more specific to the game. But again, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And if you've got somebody low in confidence, I'm gradually removing scaffolds. I'm gradually increasing variability and randomness to make it like 
the game. So we can start to increase the confidence of this player in the actual game itself. This is this is wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And going a little bit further with that, this is in our in my coaching, I call them reconnections. And that's what we do. Instead of starting with buildup of progressions, we consider those scaffolding things, reconnections, things that remind them about what we're doing. So we would start with the game, something representative. And then if we need it, we would go to these scaffolding reconnections, which is essentially, in your words, a simpler version of the game or a removal of variability. And that allows us to go from the game to teach something at a simpler level and then go back to the game and reconnect it back to the game. I love it. I love it. To to reconnect. I think that's a very human, warm, meaningful description of what you're trying to achieve. So, um, yeah, I, I really, really, I really love that. The other part I want to emphasize is that in your words, which I love, you know, small sided games or coaches want to think about them as drills. They're basically mini versions of the game. That's that's the easiest way to phrase them, right? The best version of a small sided game or a drill is a mini version of the game. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there may be some reduced um, specificity there because we've changed, you know, changed dimensions. Maybe there's some slightly different objectives there, but, you know, it it looks like the game, it presents different challenges. Uh, it, it, excuse me, it presents the challenges of the game, but a lot of the components of the game are are there. and And that's why it's so important for coaches to dial into Right. Okay. What am I doing here? How am I going to help these players to learn? How am I going to help them to perform? How am I going to help them to maintain? What can I do that's going to perhaps strip away some information, but keep the main essence of the game? Absolutely. I I, I really think that no matter um, whether it's important for a coach to have a theoretical underpinning and what theoretical underpinning that is or how they see learning and how human beings learn, I don't think anybody would deny that ultimately we want to keep things as close to the game as possible. I think that's absolutely crucial. I think that from time to time, there will be, I'll use that word again, times when players may need information that's completely stripped away and they need to work with a coach on specific challenges, specific movements, specific actions, uh, where perhaps they're slightly more isolated and they need to engage in feelings and senses that are going to help them build a, a momentum of confidence or where they can direct their attention onto certain movements or actions that enable to really attune with the kind of things that are going to be important to them when you do bring them back into a full game or on the court. Very important to understand that as human beings, we are agents and we can strip everything away. Like we say in soccer, a ball and a wall. You know, and you must have something similar in basketball. I mean, I, 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 I see shooting. It could be dribbling on your own. Yeah, it could be shooting. It could be dribbling on your own. It's understanding that as as human beings, we are agents, so we can take the experiences that we have on our own, or with one other person, or with a coach. We can take that, and we can translate what we do on our own onto the full court, into the full game. Um, we can imagine ourselves 
into or onto the full court and into the full game. So I'm certainly a believer that we can afford to strip things back at time times, but would you do that in a full training session? I, I, I think very rarely, um, but I, I think there is a time to do that. We would phrase those as more as player-led development time, right? And, and an education teacher, I borrowed this phrasing from them where they said, playing with the material. Do you ever let your students play with the material? And I see that in football, soccer all the time, right? Where there's the pre-practice time or the different times where they have down periods where, you know, they're playing ticky-tack or they're doing different types of juggling and different types of two-player actions. Like that's not a formal-led coaching period, to your point. That's more players playing with the material. I I think it's an interesting point to make. I I, I think, I wonder if context matters here because I completely understand and, 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 and to a greater degree agree with you. Um, I can only speak from the context of soccer here in England, and maybe there's something to challenge here, or maybe there's not. After after 90-minute training sessions, what a lot of players tend to do is, is certainly go off and do their own thing. But sometimes those are coach-led. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got to go into the, uh, the realms of what, how, and why here. What are we trying to do with a player? How are we trying to do it? And why are we doing it in this way? And it might be to, to, to speak to my example before where myself and, and a co- member of coaching staff actually had to help the player strip things back because that player lacked confidence. So after the 90 minute training session, uh, we took him off with a goalkeeper and actually that was coach led because we wanted to help this player understand what we were doing here. We were stripping things back and giving him an opportunity to experience striking the ball into the goal. And then we started to introduce defenders and that player just didn't necessarily have the capacity to understand, to to, to be able to set that up himself, to work on the scaffolds, to introduce the variability and the randomness himself. So I would say in that situation, all I can speak is to the context um, in which I work in, very occasionally that is done through a coach-led process. As long as there's the what, the how, the why, what am I trying to do? How am I trying to do it? Why am I trying to do it? I think that's the most important thing. I'm glad you did bring that up. That's not a controversy. That is true in basketball as well, these one-on-o coach-led sessions uh, to build task representation for the player and, you know, certainly isolated shooting practice, teaching them some type of specific dribble move that would be valuable for them, some type of refined some finishing move. That is definitely a part of basketball coaching as well. And again, you see those periods usually pre-practice, post-practice, or specific isolated training periods, right? Coming back, four coaching practices we can probably all agree on is important. Scaffolding, variability we've covered. The last two, just so coaches have the full list, feedback and retrieval. Why don't you start with feedback and talk to us about the importance of that? Mm, Feedback. Um, I'm using feedback in a global sense. I'm using it in terms of directive and non-directive instruction because I think instruction can tend to get a bit of a bad rap because instruction works synonymously with directive instructions, telling players what to do. And absolutely, there can be a part of that, and there's different ways to do that, You know, whether that's um, telling a player actually specifically where to go um, or how to throw something or how to kick something. You can do that if, if that is within your... Uh, coach philosophy and viewpoint and lens of the world. Uh, equally, potentially, you could tell a player uh, where to look, 
not necessarily what to see, but where to look. You could, uh, and I think within that instruction, I think suggesting is, is also an offering choice. If there's a continuum from directive to non-directive, suggestions and offering choice might come slightly along the along the continuum there, right the way through to non-directive, where we're where where we're we're going into questioning. And again, for those who are really passionate about coaching and, and a little bit of a, a nerd around it, like myself, we can actually break questioning down into convergent questioning and divergent questioning, convergent questioning, basically in very simple terms being, well, we're kind of asking players or a player a question, but we have a, a ready answer for that player. We kind of want them to come towards us in terms of how we see the game. A divergent question will be a question that we can't really answer as a coach because it's very much cemented in the world of the player. What did you experience there? What did you see there? What did you see there that made you that, that made you make that decision? What was it in your world that you experienced um, that, that, that led to that decision there? Um, so things that we can't necessarily answer ourselves, but we've got to get information from, from the player. I think that we can pretty much agree that directive and non-directive instructions exist. There would definitely be some coaches who would prefer to stay on one side. There would definitely be coaches who would who would be very happy to go to the middle ground with suggestions and with choices. Some might want to go completely to the telling a player what to do. You can you could probably go towards telling the player what to do while keeping an external focus of attention if we want to get nitty gritty about an ecological approach. But by and large, feedback is important, right? Um, so when we feedback, I do think we're engaging in instructions, directive and non-directive. And I think that's not too controversial. If we want to get into the granular detail, there's plenty of Twitter debates about what that can look like. But um, yeah, that, that, that to me is feedback and feedback is part of coach behavior. You know, we, as coach behaviors, we want to engage in feedback. How are we going to do it? What are we doing? How are we doing it? Why are we doing it in this way? So that to me is feedback. Well, I love it. I love talking about feedback. I love talking about questions. Do you, do you have a feeling or opinion on cold calling with questions versus asking for participation? Both are valuable, but is there one that you feel better in coaching sessions? I think both are value. Yeah, I mean, to, to speak yeah. to your point there, I think both are value. I think it depends. I think it depends what you're trying to do. I think it depends on context. You know, uh, who am I coaching? When am I coaching? Where am I coaching? What's going on around? Have I got a game on Saturday that uh, means I've got to uh, get, get, get a, a lot of things aligned very, very quickly? which may still involve cold calling, uh, participative questioning and answering. I just think it depends. I, I'm not a fan of one or t'other. I just think it, you know what? I think um, I, I'm, very much, I'm very much pragmatic about this stuff. I think it all exists. Mm -hmm. I think when I engage, I wouldn't necessarily say my main job is coach. Uh, coach. I'm not a coach educator as such as in that. I wouldn't say that's my full-time job, but I certainly engage in coach education as a sports psychologist. And I would always be on the sidelines and my main, you know, when I sit down with the coaches, what are you doing? How are you doing it? And why are you doing it in this way? Um, what other ways are there to do this? How might you engage with those other ways? And why might you on another day do it in, in another way? 
So uh, I think it all exists. I, I think it's just about for coaches. It's either having a critical friend, a mentor, a coach themselves, a coaching advisor who from the sidelines is going, hey, what, how, why? What, how, why? And as I say, it's being that critical friend from the side. Well, using your sports psychology expertise, I think something that underpins a lot of what you share is, especially in regards to feedback, is ultimately what does the athlete actually interpret from the feedback? Mm. And I know one of the things you talk about, which I think coaches are starting to learn and value a lot more, is these review sessions. So maybe start with the first, just how do we ensure the athlete interprets what we wanted them to interpret? Or how do we check for that understanding? And then secondly, the value of review sections. Well, I, 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 and I think to a degree, this comes under the fourth, fourth coaching factor that we can probably agree on, which is, which, which is retrieval uh, to, to, to a degree. You know, when, we, when we've taught somebody something, we probably want to check for understanding. We don't have to. But what we know is that uh, from cognitive psychology is that players uh, are going to forget things quite quickly. And that, that is known, uh, that comes under the rubric of the forgetting curve. And, and I, as, as somebody who's passionate about cognitive psychology, would talk about working memory and long-term memory and how, you know, working memory is a very uh, small and fragile store. Um, and we want to shift information into long-term memory. And so we want to really check for understanding so that players carrying on, carry on encoding that information so they can remember that information. But possibly more to your point, so that we know that they've understood what we've said, whether that's action-oriented or whether that's, that's uh, information-oriented. So after we've taught, we want to check for understanding. Uh, and that there's a number of questions that you can ask, and this probably comes under the rubric here of divergent questions, which is very, it could be as simple as, tell me about what you've understood there. I've taught you something new there. Can you reflect that back for me? Can you describe what you've learned for me there? Or it might be cloaked slightly more subtly. For instance, it might be in that session, what have you learned that you might use in a game? Or in that session, the things that we did, is there a player out there who does that really well? Describe for me what he or she does really, really well. And I think that, that they're slightly cloaked questions whereby we're not overtly saying, hey, what did I teach you there? It's kind of it, it's just getting people, players to recall what they did during the session in order, them, in order for them to retrieve that, to rehearse it, to repeat it, and subsequently remember it. In my words, in my world, excuse me, it's about remembering it. Uh, and so that's what I would get players to do. Now, obviously, if it was more action oriented, given the opportunity, we might get them to engage in that action again. Uh, so we might check for understanding um, from a verbal perspective. We might test for understanding from a task or an activity perspective. So we might have a group of players learn something new. Then we might take them away, do something different with them. Um, get them to do a completely different task, bring them back and get there and then test what they've learned in the previous task 
we might test them with a new activity. Um, and that's essentially engaging them in spacing, in, spa in something called spacing. So we teach them, we take them away, get them to do a new task, bring them back to the previous task with the things that we've previously taught them. And they've got to engage in that activity again. And we're checking, we're testing their understanding. Can they do the activity again? Can they engage in the actions again? Can they remember what to do? And the, that process of forgetting and then remembering strengthens the encoding process. It strengthens that activity across their neuronal pathways, across their nervous system, and gives them a better chance to remember those actions or that information over time. So there's quite a lot of stuff there. So I hope all of that made sense and I wasn't too rambly. But uh, that, 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 that's what I would think about when I'm thinking about testing for understanding, checking for understanding, retrieval practice. And I, I think we can all agree that that's important. What the underpinning mechanisms are from a neural perspective, whether you're ecological, whether you're cognitive, that exists. And so there might be subtle differences in coach behavior or subtle differences in how we go about it. But that retrieval, that rehearsal still exists. Hey, coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about basketballmersion.com. Get the most out of yourself and your players. Since 2014, thousands and thousands of coaches have become members of our community. We would love for you to join too, but don't just take our word for it. Listen to what a recent new member told us. I subscribed to Basketball Immersion on Monday. What an awesome site. Beats the crap out of Netflix. And here's what a long-term member told us. BDT and eliminating the fluff has been the reason we have become successful as a program. A Basketball Immersion membership has been our secret weapon. What are you waiting for? It's time to next level your players and team. Join our membership community at www.basketballimmersion.com. We look forward to sharing everything with you. Tremendous. I mean, those examples alone. I mean, obviously, coaches, we all do it. Do you understand? But that doesn't take them deep enough. And that doesn't, as we said, help in terms of this, this retrieval practice and uh, spaced rehearsal. Um, interleaving for deeper learning, these type of words, just for coaches that want to research it more, because that's what we're trying to do here, Dan. We're trying to support coaches in terms of them wanting to dive deeper with some of these things that intuitively some of them do, but obviously all of us can do better at times. So if you don't mind, go a little bit deeper with retrieval, which is the fourth thing, and this space rehearsal. Maybe give us, if you don't mind, an example from a practice of how to do this. Sure. So uh, again, I'll, I'll give it. I'll give you an example from the world of soccer. So I was working with a Premier League club just prior to lockdown, actually, and um, I was actually functioning in the medical department. So the English Premier League. This is soccer, and I was functioning mainly in the medical department. But I, 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 I had permission from the uh, manager or head coach, as one might call him, and the coaching staff to observe practice and provide any feedback. Um, they would act on what they felt was relevant. And one of the things I felt was happening, so what can tend to happen, and I'm, I'm going to make a broad brush statement here, but what can tend to happen even at the Premier League level, so this is the very adult elite level, is that if, 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 if we think about, there's lots of ways to coach a team. Obviously there is, and there's lots of ways different coaches engage in teams, but something that 
it tends to be quite popular within uh, soccer uh, at the highest level in the English Premier League uh, is patterns. Teams tend to have patterns of play. Okay. Now, I'm not an expert on patterns of play. I'm a sports psychologist, right? But what I tended to, to, to observe was that the coaching staff on a Thursday and Friday for a Saturday game would, on a Thursday, would tend to introduce the team to the pattern or patterns that they wanted the team to engage in on Saturday against the opposition, the specific opposition they were playing against. So what they what would they do? They would do everything. They would do, they would do a rondo, a keep ball, everything they would normally do on a Thursday. And then they would do, I don't know, about 15 minutes, 20 minutes tops of pattern work. But they would do it all in one go. Now, they would scaffold it to, to a degree. So what they would tend to do would be like, I don't know, five or so minutes of uh, pattern work uh, unopposed. And then they would introduce an opposition. Usually it was against, say, a selection of the under-23s players. Um, and so they would bring the under-23s in. And so there was, a, there was an opposing team there. And they would do that just feeding balls in from various locations. And then they would add a bit more specificity or representation. And they would have a, a normal kickoff and they would play, I don't know, eight minutes or so of a normal game. But the team had to involve themselves in the pattern that they just taught. And then they'd go off and we'd have lunch and, 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 and go home. Okay, fine. That seems like the obvious thing to do. One of the things I said to the coaches was, look, What's crucial here is that you're helping your players to remember the pattern of play. And it was kind of set against the backdrop where I had overheard the coaching staff talking about the players not necessarily sticking with the pattern of play for a few weeks in a row. And I said, I think your players are forgetting this pattern because they do that on a Thursday in the way I described it. They'd come back on Friday, do a much lighter session and do a much shorter version of, uh, of the pattern training. Uh, but, but that was it. And I said, I don't think you're engaging these players in enough retrieval practice. You're not helping. You're not creating enough difficulty here. And so I think I said to them, I think you need to help your players engage in a part of the session where they're forgetting about it. So you're teaching them the pattern. Then they're forgetting about the pattern because you're getting them to do something else. Then you're bringing them back to that pattern and, and you're testing them. So this is what we did. They did their normal thing on a Thursday, but started the pattern work a little bit earlier. So they did the unopposed, then the opposed. Um, and then they took them away and they did uh, a keep ball game, I think it was. And then they brought that. Uh, then they brought the players back. So was, there was a good 10 minutes or so that passed. And then they set up a situation. And I don't know what that situation was because I'm not an expert on this, but uh, they set up a, 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 a situation, a circumstance where the players had to remember certain things about that pattern of play related to the responsibilities in their role. They tested them. They put them under a bit of pressure. And what they found was that those players really struggled. They really had to think hard. So we almost come back to that learning situation that we spoke about at the beginning of this conversation. The players really struggled to remember what they had to do. 
in their in their responsibilities in their role that 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 those patterns that they had to engage with they were thinking harder they were having to retrieve that information rehearse it in their mind and that retrieval and rehearsal was etching that into their brain it's something called memory consolidation consolidating their memories from the original teaching of the passing pattern and what we believe at the neuronal level what's happening is something called a potentiation so when players are coming back after doing the keep ball they're coming back they're given a challenge relating related to the passing pattern activity they're really having to they're retrieving that information they're having to rehearse it they're having to really think about it while they're engaging in that challenge in that difficulty and so that those brain pathways are really firing there it's not easy for them they're firing and they're cementing those neuronal pathways in their brain related to the specific passing pattern that they've been taught or the specific game patterns that they've been taught when they came off that uh, activity that challenging activity um i had the coaches test their an- understanding further so actually vocally ask them questions about what they just experienced gave them a verbal scenarios that they had to go through and talk about together in small groups again so they're having to retrieve rehearse brainstorm consider that passing activity or passing pattern in certain given situations that they might experience at the weekend in their actual game so there was a lot of challenge there there was spacing there were difficulties and so players would constantly have to try to retrieve the information the passing uh, uh passing patterns the information that they'd learned and it was etched into their mind uh, in a in a better way whether uh, coaches felt that made a big difference on game day i was told that it did that players reported back that they felt that they remembered those passing patterns better on game day than they had previously just because they had found it more challenging and so they had to encode them deeper deeper they were retrieving that information more and more and so yeah hopefully that gives you some idea of what that looks like in a slightly deeper deeper manner well i love it and it is it relates so much to basketball coaching especially in terms of set uh, teaching set plays patterns of play same idea mm-hmm. uh coaches teach a lot of patterns of play and often they'll teach them in blocks and then expect them to be able to apply it as opposed to, as you say, spacing it in terms of the rehearsal so that they are on the verge of forgetting it and then have to retrieve it and remember it again, which leads to this permanence. And I think it was an awesome example to be able to connect that. And then I just want to say one other thing, memory consolidation, your post on that about connecting that to water breaks is, can you go through that quickly? Because I thought that was really good practical example of how to do memory consolidation and make water breaks more practical. <laughs> yeah, and, and and you know, in many respects today, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about comes under the the idea from um, a couple of incredible cognitive psychologists, Bjork and Bjork, uh, Robert Bjork and Elizabeth Bjork, based out in California. They're experts on learning and memory, 
And I love your questions today, Chris, because this is really taking me out of my comfort zone because usually I go on podcasts and talking about mental skills and uh, welfare, well-being. And, and, and so this, this is fantastic. And, and hopefully I'm making some semblance of sense. And when I do these threads on Twitter, in many respects, it's me teaching me. You know, I, I'm writing stuff to try to learn this stuff. And if I come back to taking a broad definition of psychology, uh, and please take this in the way that I'm meant to, uh, I'm trying to get this across. There's not many sports psychologists who are that engaged in learning design. Well, keep and doing it, Dan, because it's helping well, all of us. Well, it's but, great. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 there's skill acquisition coaches who who leave me for for dead on this stuff. So I, I, but I, I think it's important for a sports psychologist to have a good understanding of this and work in conjunction. So we're working quite nicely hand in hand because. I, I think you're a little bit more fluent on some of the, the specific coaching terms for this. And I, I love this. And what I, what, again, if I come back to my experiences in standing for thousands of hours by the side of Premier League soccer pitches, as an example, and I think about how human beings learn or how I believe human beings learn, and there's always different different approaches and different lenses, which is everybody's entitled for that. And we don't have a field if we don't have debates and differences of opinions here, right? Um, I very much believe in this idea of working memory and long-term memory, and, and we've got to really help players strive to remember things. And if we've just taught players something in an activity like we've just, just described, then we have to give players an opportunity for memory consolidation to remember because we forget very quickly. Now, one thing you notice, no matter the sport, but I noticed this in soccer, was that, hey, players are, players are taking uh, physical breaks, understandably so, to go and have some water, to go and chill out, have some water, and what are they doing there? They're having a physical rest and often they're having a mental rest. Now, sometimes having a mental rest is a really important thing to do because you know, sessions tend to be intense. And maybe often that's the right thing to do. But I've often felt that when there's been a heavy cognitive load of teaching or instruction, whether that's coaches teaching players different responsibilities related to different principles of play, related to their game model or something akin to, to those things. I've felt that those water breaks have been wasted opportunities for players to engage in memory consolidation as in this retrieval practice. As in players have been taught a few things, their working memories have been stretched and now players just walk off, have, some, have something to drink, chat about what they did at the weekend, what they're going to be doing in the afternoon, whatever it is, chat about their studies if they're college player. And it's nothing to do with what they've just experienced or what they've just learned in the activity that they've just been engaged with. And so I've historically said to coaches, hey, isn't that a great opportunity to either for yourself as a coach to go up, hey, have some water here, guys. But what I want you to do is, in your own mind, have a think about what you've just learned there. What two or three critical things you've just learned, what you've engaged 
in your own mind. Or, hey, have some water here, chill out, have a physical rest, but just grab a partner and tell that partner just in 30 seconds what you've just experienced there, what you've just learned, what the key points are that you've learned. So what you're doing is consolidating memories. In other words, strengthening memories under your skull. What we may believe is happening neurologically, as I said before, is that idea of potentiation. So as players are thinking about what they've just learned, or they're describing to their teammate what they've just learned, as they're gulping down some water, they're firing their pathways and strengthening those pathways, the synapses between their uh, neurons, their brains. They're reinforcing what they've just learned. Um, they're retrieving, they're rehearsing, they're reinforcing. So they're preventing forgetting. So they're, they're, they are transferring that information into long-term memory. That's my belief. So I think utilizing not every single water break, but utilizing between sets, between rep moments is useful. And I did this quite heavily again in my last position at a Premier League club with the goalkeeping coaches quite a lot because there's always quite a lot because with goalkeeping in soccer, you're in this close proximity to each other. So you do a quick rep and then you take a mini break and another quick rep and you take a mini break. And I said, you, you guys have got to utilize these breaks. This is the time for, for players to consolidate their memories, retrieve, rehearse, reinforce, remember. You know, those four R's, retrieve, rehearse, reinforce, remember. That's crucial. You know, so those, those pockets of moments, water breaks between reps, between sets, maybe at the end of activities, maybe at the end of the sessions, those are great times for retrieval, rehearsal, reinforcement, remembering. Well, I love it because it also strikes me that as a sports psychologist integrated in a team, that's mm -hmm. also a great time for you to be able to stimulate them as retrieval practice, rehearsal, to be able to apply the things that you've told them already within or taught them already within, you know, classroom and practice, right? And just briefly here, you know, bringing in this idea as, as a sports psychologist, this is where you, you know, I'm a big believer, of, you know, as a sports psychologist, ideally, I've got my sneakers on, I've got my cleats yeah. on. Integration. Here in the UK, I've got my boots on and I'm getting in there. This is a great opportunity for me to work on teamwork. Mm -hmm. So I want collaboration. Hey, Joe, what did you experience there? Tell everybody quickly, 10 seconds. Hey, Joe, pick somebody. Uh, Joe, pick somebody. He picks Stuart. Stuart, pick somebody else and so on and so forth. Hey, we're working on teamwork here. So we're doing some cold calling there. We're working on some teamwork. We're driving some leadership. Uh, and, and there's so many mini, I can bring in mental skills there as well. So there's mo so many mini pockets of moments to bring in that biopsychosocial element here, the component that envelopes the technical, tactical, and physical size that drives participation, uh, preparation, uh, sorry, uh, uh, progression and performance. So, so yeah, it's, it, it's a real all-in approach. I love it. I love it. Uh, one of the phrasings that I love and I want you to talk about is persuade yourself of your own credibility daily. <laughs> and I, I'm telling you, I mean, this 
<laughs> this gets down to it, not just for players, but for coaches too, right? Yeah, massively. And there's so many different directions we can take here in it, you know, to persuade yourself of your own credibility daily. I mean, I, I, I wrote about this and, and, it, and, it, and it feels like it comes from the, uh, the, 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 the papers of, of the motivational gurus. And, but it, it, it really has, I, am a big believer that we do tend to, to, to bias towards the negative. We do tend to, I think from an evolutionary standpoint, it's not to suggest that some of us don't have an optimism bias, but lots of us have a pessimism bias and we tend, tend to treat positives with Teflon and the, the negatives tend to be quite sticky. And, and, and so, um, I, I think it's important to set up. I mean, certainly when I start talking about mental skills with players, I try to set up a situation where they can, from a granular perspective, start to convince themselves daily uh, of their their own credibility. And it, and it's really about you know reflecting on best games reflecting or imagining dream games. So I talk, I suppose the best way for me to answer here is to say we all as human beings have three tools in our portable psychology toolkit. Okay. Memory, imagination, and perception. Imagine here that you've got a, a portable psychology toolkit as players and as coaches. And, and we need to engage in great memories every day. Uh, great pieces of, of of imagination and perception that helps us, that affords us the opportunity to feel good. Memory, very simply, remember you at your best. Remember your strengths. Remember your best moments. Remind yourself of your resources. That's very much built from frameworks we use in psychology, like solution-focused brief therapy, or a very important framework in uh, corporate uh, organizational psychology um, called appreciative inquiry, where corporations work towards remembering themselves at their best, their strengths, what they've got, adaptive resources, et cetera. I think you can do that on an individual level. So coaches going in there and just 30 seconds, a minute at the beginning of a session, hey, remember you at your best, think about it now, tell your mate, tell your teammate there, yourself at your best, talk about it in granular detail. What what do you see? What do others see? What do others experience? What do you see? What do you experience? Remember you at your best. That's memory, you know, and that's a form of convincing yourself of your own credibility. And then imagination, your dream game. What will it look like at the weekend if you play in your dream game? Not just a 10 out of 10 game, but an 11 out of 10 game, a 12 out of 10 game. What would a dream game look like? Again, what would what would what would you see? What would you feel? What would other experience others experience if they're playing with you? Uh, and then perception. It could be something like, "Hey, who do you want to be out there? Who do you want to be out there? How do you want to go about your business out there? You know, who do you want to be? How do you want to go about this game? Perception. What would it what would it look like here if it all goes well? What would it look like here if it all goes well? What is working? What is good? right now what is strong right right now what do you have right now so those kind those kind of things memory imagination and perception and i'll give you another quick tool here that you can use one of the most powerful tools and something i tweet about all the time is scaling mm. and this works in line with perception on a scale of one to ten if you're a coach out there listening in you've got a player who's low in confidence right uh, and you say to them, hey, give me, a, give me a mark out of 10, from 1 to 10, with 10 being you're as confident 
as you can possibly be. One being you're not confident at all. Where are you now? And that player probably says, oh, coach, I'm feeling down right now. I'm about five out of 10. You can change the perception immediately by saying, great, five out of 10. Why so high? What's good at the moment? Why five? Why not four? What's working? And so you're just changing their perception of that situation from, oh, wow, I'm five out of 10. Woe is me. Everything is wrong to, okay, five out of 10. What is good? Why am I not at three? What is working right now? What am I doing well in practice? And then starting to talk about what six out of 10 looks like, what seven out of 10 looks like. Because what you find when somebody is low in confidence is the thick language is down the bottom. It's like everything is woe is me. The thin language is about what's good. And we want to turn that around. We want to make our, our sentences, our phrases, our, 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 every part of our language around what's good, what's strong, what's, in, what's, what's working. And then what does six or seven out of 10 look like? What am I doing? How am I going about things? So memory, imagination, perception, those are three tools you can use to persuade yourself of your credibility every day. I love this. Thank you. And the scaling I wanted to get to, and as you say, it strips away emotion, which I love. And is that as simple as like we have a, we could do it in a group setting or do we partner them and do them in partners? Or is this a coach to player conversation or all of the above? Hey, look, you know, you could go crazy <laughs> with this. You really yeah. can. You could, you could teach players how to use it because it really is quite a simple tool. Um, I would say begin at the beginning. And I think that you know, scaling is something that's heavily used in solution-focused brief therapy and motivational interviewing. And about any coach can go and uh, Google those terms. And there's some really good books out there uh, on, on them. And, and so scaling is that simple one to 10. So I would say, I would say first of all, it's coach-driven. Uh, I, I think I would say coaches use it with your players. But you could teach your team how to use scaling, how to use it. And so I use it with myself. You know, try to practice what I preach. If I'm feeling a bit, uh, you know, if I'm feeling a little bit uh, lacking confidence in some department, I might think, well, okay, where am I right now on that scale? Okay, why am I as high as uh, I'm saying I am? And what have I got to do? What action steps have I got to take to get one up? But I do think you can teach it to players. I mean, I, I appreciate there's not always time necessarily to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that. I think there's a birth of ideas out there for how coaches can help players um, change behavior, increase confidence and so on and so forth. And I think a tool like scaling can be very powerful to help them, uh, to help coaches, to, to help players in that respect. I love it. And, and it seems like what, to wrap this all up, what the buzzword is, is obviously psychological safety, whether you have a different word for it or not. But this notion of the players are comfortable that you're not going to freak out if they say they're a two on something where, you know, all of a sudden now they're admitting that they're, they weren't as good, right? But that actually, that self-awareness is so important for their development. It is. And I, and I think, look, I mean, I, I, I think coaches who are passionate about coaching are starting to, there's so many good resources out there now. And so many good resources that are helping coaches to understand that we can certainly engage in this in this game of the player has to take charge and take control of every or can take charge and take control of everything. 
Um, I, there, there tends to be a mantra out there. You can control your attitude, effort, and energy. You've got to bring your attitude, effort, and energy out onto the court with you. It's up to you. And you can choose to be that coach who does that. And there may be some, some efficacy to what you're saying there. There's always got to be some personal responsibility for players there. But what we know more and more is that part of being human is to understand human frailty. It's to understand that human functioning, if we think about feelings at the very deepest level, then emotions, then thoughts, then attention. So feelings, emotions, thoughts, and attention. These things tend to happen to players. They happen to human beings. I don't feel a certain way on purpose. I don't experience a certain emotion on purpose. I don't think certain thoughts on purpose. My attention doesn't shift from broad to narrow, from outwards to in, external to internal on purpose. These, the, these inner experiences happen to us. Now, I as a person, as a player, really, if I want to excel in any domain, I probably want to learn how to take charge of my feelings emotions, thoughts, and attention. There's a subtle difference from the language of you can control attitude, effort, and energy, and you can learn to take control of attitude, effort, and energy. And I'm very much in the camp of I'm never, ever going to suggest that players shouldn't be held accountable and shouldn't be personally responsible think. But as coaching, we are our privilege or our burden is that we are coaching human beings and they come loaded with these things. And probably part of our activities and our sessions and part of our culture is to engage in a coaching practice, practice that helps people, players to take control of feelings, emotions, thoughts, and attention attitude, effort, and energy. And we can do this, as I've said, with the activities, with our coach behaviors in our activities, in our sessions. We can do this with the skills, the mental skills, the mental techniques we introduce to players. That's all got to be thrown in. And I'm answering you in this way, in this long-winded way, because ultimately, if we are going to use scaling, we have to create a position whereby players feel comfortable to say, hey, coach, yeah, I'm down at three. here." To be able to feel a certain degree of vulnerability and be able to trust that coach to be able to say, hey, I'm down at three here. I probably need some skills to help me rise up. I need to be able to manage this situation better. You know, human beings are complex. They function biopsychosocially. Thought, um, uh, feelings, emotions, thoughts, attention are influenced biopsychosocially. Who are we to assume that somebody comes to our coaching practice and that person has been shown how the stepping stones to have resilient moments? Who are we to assume that somebody comes from a social environment that means that they've learned that turning up on time or turning up 10 minutes early is essential? And they come from a, an environment that enables them to do so. And they're not encircled by life's challenges that makes it tough for them to arrive 10 minutes early. Who are we to assume that people have so much grasp over these powerful internal sensations that 
they can just turn up and suddenly they're paying attention to everything that we do. And they're suddenly really, really competitive. And they have the skill of learning down pat. I'm really, really sorry. But you can't just make assumptions there. And you can't start saying, hey, man, it's up to you. It's up to you. you you've got to bring this. It's not up to me. Now, the final thing to say here is this comes under potentially the rubric of perception of control and locus of control. Locus of control is this, not locust, but locus, locus of control, locus is, is in direction. Are we internal? Or are we external? And I always say the best thing that we, the best environment we could possibly have is when coaches have an internal locus of control. So these, they see themselves responsible for developing skill in a player, technically, tactically, physically, mentally, emotionally. And then we've got an environment where we're so good at coaching that we've helped upskill players so that players believe that they are in control of the technique, technical, tactical, physical, mental, emotional sides of the game as well. We're all in. We're all responsible. We're all in charge. We're all in control. It's a collaboration. That doesn't mean the coaches might hierarchically sit slightly higher up, but there's a collaboration there. There's less of a threat. We're working together. We're all in. We're holding each other accountable. We're co-creating solutions. It doesn't mean the coach isn't an expert and providing expertise, but we're co-creating and we're working together on this. I think that's a very powerful position to be in. And I would say to, to, to your audience, uh, it's a tough place to get to, but it's, it's perhaps the divine Alexa. That's, that's the place we want to get to. Uh, just tremendous stuff. I, uh, I, I mean, you can tell uh, coaches why I love following Dan and why I love learning from him. You mentioned good resources. You're a part of that. Uh, Soccer Tough, uh, Soccer Tough 2, Soccer Brain, Golf Tough. And then, of course, I think it's just a tremendous resource is the Sports Psych Podcast, Sports Psych Show Podcast. If coaches, if you aren't listening to that, just tremendous. You can hear Dan's thoughts with the uh, other experts from around the world. And it's just tremendous. So thank you so much for sharing all that and for sharing with us as well. Hey, it's been an honor and delight, Chris. Thank you so much. You've taken me out of my comfort zone today. Um, so hopefully coaches have got something out of that. Came a bit more into my comfort zone towards the end as we started to be more traditionally psychologically based, but um, I love it. And I appreciate your support for the, for the, for the podcast and all my work. And I, I, love to come back on the show sometime in the future. So thank you so much. Coach, thanks for listening to the Basketball Podcast. We appreciate your ongoing support. Please consider going to basketballimmersion.com and immersionvideos.com to check out all the products we have to offer. We appreciate your support and we look forward to continuing to share the game with you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.